Um, it's a great pleasure to um, introduce Dr. Gail Davies from the University of Edinburgh, who I think many of you have know her work. Um, she's published on the history of psychiatry, specifically the history of GPI in the 19th century, and also has published widely on um, the history of venereal disease in, in Scotland um, in that period. So it's a great pleasure to have her here today um, on a very interesting topic, I think, artificial insemination in 20th century Scotland. So over to you. Thank you, Catherine. Thank, thank you for the invite. And I think it's customary to say I'm glad to be here, but given the flight I had, I'm genuinely glad <laughs> to be here. <laughs> the, the paper I want to discuss with you today is, is based on ongoing welcome-funded research um, onto the interface between infertility, health and sexuality in Scotland between about 1950 and 1990. Um, the intention of this project is to examine reproductive pathologies, technologies and ethics in terms of both the formulation and medical implementation of policy, or as I refer to it, the policy and practice of reproduction. The research attempts to gauge how medical ideologies and agencies interacted with broader socio-legal concerns and processes. Such considerations are set within a geographically localised context, which asks whether there was a distinctively Scottish socio-medical response to the politics of reproduction, given Scotland's separate traditions of law, medical practice, local government, and the continuing social significance of religion. Um, the, the project builds upon previous research that I conducted into the policy and practice of abortion in post-1950 Scotland. In the course of that research, it became clear to me that historians of sexuality within the British context had in large part underestimated the extent to which the policy process had been driven by the medical profession, or at the very least key individuals um, within that profession. Moreover, although that project was intended to focus exclusively upon the policy-making process, it became increasingly apparent to me that policy can only ever really be one side of the coin in fields certainly such as these. Of equal or indeed greater importance must be the degree to which policy influences and is interpreted within medical practice. Thus I chose to pursue an explicitly dual consideration of the policy and practice of infertility in the new work. Um, that said, I'm still trying to complete the policy part uh, of the project. Um, it's proving troublesome in one major respect, and that is what seems to be fast becoming the enemy of the contemporary historian, freedom of information, FOI, three letters that strike fear into, well, my heart, certainly. Uh, for those of us who work on sensitive recent topics, it's become the bane of our lives. Um, and while I currently fight the good fight against the Scottish Government to gain access to the 1980s Warnock Committee's deliberations, uh, which were uh, open when I put in my research application, she added bitterly, um, I, uh, I've decided that uh, I would focus a little more on the earlier period, the 1950s. Um, although that decade is a fairly narrow chronological period, I'm fortunate that I've for that decade, I have the detailed deliberations of the Feversham um, the committee, the Departmental Committee on Human Artificial Insemination, chaired by Lord Feversham. Um, this imaginatively titled Feversham Committee shouldn't be confused with a previous Feversham Committee in 1930s Britain that was concerned with Britain's voluntary mental health services. My Feversham Committee was appointed uh, by the government in 1958 
to investigate whether any change in the law relating to artificial insemination was necessary or desirable in order to protect the interests of specific individuals or society as a whole. Um, the very wide range of witnesses approached to give evidence and the voluminous written and oral evidence received give rich insights into the insights into the complex social politics and anxieties surrounding infertility and its treatment through AI in 1950s Britain. Very briefly, by way of background, um, I should mention that the first recorded case of human artificial insemination which resulted in pregnancy and the delivery of a child was said to have been performed by a Scottish doctor, John Hunter, in London around 1790, though the practice did not become widespread in Britain until about the 1930s. It was estimated that between 1930 and 1960, there were around 2,000 births by AI in Britain, though this was an extremely rough figure, partly by virtue of the shame and secrecy that surrounded the procedure. Artificial insemination was designed, um, defined sorry, as a method of facilitating conception where it was not possible by normal sexual intercourse, either because of sterility in the husband or because of some other physical or mental disability of husband or wife. Where sterility or some adverse genetic factor in the husband was the problem, it was deemed necessary to use semen from a donor, known as artificial insemination by donor or AID, otherwise the husband's own semen would be used AIH. The terms of reference of the Feversham Committee were to inquire into existing practice of human AI and its legal consequences and to consider whether, taking account of the interests of individuals involved and of society as a whole, any change in the law is necessary or desirable. The impetus for this departmental committee, the need for a clarification of the legal status of artificial insemination, stemmed in fact from a Scottish legal case in 1958, the divorce action McLennan versus McLennan considered whether a woman who had had artificial insemination by donor without her husband's consent could be said to have committed adultery. While the Judge Lord Wheatley noted that such insemination without the husband's consent was, quote, a grave matrimonial offence, he ruled that it did not strictly amount to adultery because penetrative sexual intercourse had not taken place and he denied the husband divorce on those grounds. He noted that legislation would be required to make it a new ground for divorce. Public outrage followed Lord Wheatley's ruling, with the majority of the British population appearing to consider AI a sin, a crime or both. We get the sense that if sexuality is being policed here, it's women's sexuality, and if consent is being sought, it's male consent of both the husband and the semen donor. And one of the reasons that I'm very interested in artificial insemination is because it's a very complex subject, medically and legally. It spans a range of disciplines, um, as revealed by the wide range of witnesses who the Feversham Committee approached to give evidence they could roughly be broken into the, the categories legal, medical, religious and social, but there were over a hundred organisations and individuals um, spanning quite a range um, of interests. I want to focus particularly today on the medical evidence. 
As I read through that evidence, I was particularly struck by the lack of experience that most Scottish medical witnesses had of the procedure, how few of them had ever actually performed artificial insemination, despite being called to the committee precisely because of their supposedly greater knowledge of the subject. The Feversham Committee established that only six doctors were practising AI in Britain around 1958, one in Manchester, one in Exeter and, and four in London, that den of iniquity where anything is possible. Four to five more were said to have dabbled in AI at some point, then given it up. And these do include Scotland-based physicians. In their evidence, the Scottish physicians generally had plenty to say about the procedure. But when they were asked to put a figure on how many of these procedures they'd actually performed, we see a startling lack of, display, of experience on display. And as I say, these were generally doctors who were consulted specifically because of their expertise in the field of infertility. Doctors openly declared some of their knowledge to be second-hand, and then were often hazy about the details of the source. In one case, when quizzed about their written evidence that sperm donors were financially motivated and were always paid for their donations, doctors from one of the medical royal colleges stated quite boldly, I do not think we have any factual knowledge. We were judging what we believed to be the state of affairs in the United States. Of course, they didn't mention that until they were really put on the spot. These doctors later went on to note... We have in Edinburgh always refused to have anything to do with AID and tried to solve the problem with adoption. One doctor started a clinic in Glasgow's Royal Samaritan Hospital for Women devoted exclusively to the investigation and treatment of infertile marriages, a clinic that he claimed to be the first of its kind in the UK. However, after around five years, donor insemination was discontinued there because of various associated difficulties principally that it was extremely difficult to obtain donated semen to the point where he complained that he had to largely approach fellow doctors and occasionally personal friends. And I've joked that, that my awkward staff room encounters can be nothing compared to this, <laughs> this, uh, this man's. He also did complain about the, uh, the expense involved in the procedure since most donors echoing his, his colleagues from, from Edinburgh, apparently demanded a payment for each specimen, and he complained also about the lack of success that he had encountered. Even if you were able to find men willing to donate their sperm, eugenic considerations needed to be taken into account. Firstly, the clinician had difficulty ensuring that a donor was not related to any of his female patients, and this clearly worried the doctors offering the procedure... <coughs> One biologist elaborated upon this widespread concern in a letter to the Glasgow Herald newspaper at this time, writing that he considered the practice to be indefensible on biological grounds and argued that the community must be protected from the consequences of this procedure. His main concern was that no record was kept of the sperm donors, quote, sorry for the length of this quote, who must be a small group of men called upon by a smaller group of doctors. It is therefore easily conceivable that two children with the same father may later mate and procreate. It is even possible that a father may mate with his own daughter. This will lead to an exaggeration of all characteristics of the genetic line, including the bad ones, and in the absence of means of exterminating the weaklings, 
must result in damage to the community. One of the reasons for careful registration of births, deaths and marriages is to prevent this calamity and no misplaced pity for the childless woman should warp her views. He finished his letter, I cannot believe that any woman would wish to put her children and grandchildren in such danger and I believe that were the biological facts well known, the practice would cease. However, other doctors, um, such as a psychiatrist based in Perth, argued that anonymity must be um, absolute and that AI must be utterly anonymous with no records whatsoever <coughs> being kept. Otherwise, the questions arise about who would be responsible for the records and who would have the right of access to these records. So clearly there was wide divergence of opinion um, on this aspect. Most agreed that eugenic consideration of the donor's stock was, however, to be taken into account. One doctor made reference to the extreme difficulties which his farming friends experienced in trying to breed bulls, asking, how much more complicated is the human being than the Aberdeen Angus bull? Unlike bulls, he complained, human beings required a broad range of factors to be taken into consideration, IQ, physique, um, emotional state, and such factors that were, quote, extraordinarily hard to assess. That doctor also noted, it's difficult enough to choose one's children's mates when they are going to marry, and how much more difficult it must be to choose a donor who is prepared to sire any woman. Calling into question um, implicitly the personality type of the donor. Another doctor raised the possibility of different religious denominations, wishing to have sperm only from one of the same religion. Um, and that doctor claimed that he himself had twice had requests from Jewish people who wished insemination with only Jewish sperm. This doctor claimed that he turned them down on the basis that he could not guarantee any specimen of semen could be from a Jewish person. Um, such religious concerns were noted to be particularly likely in Glasgow with its, quote, Irish element. You've always got to watch that Irish element. Others pointed out the problem of race. As one witness put it, quote, the husband, <coughs> the husband might object to his child being coffee-coloured, shall we say? And there were a number of quotes along those lines. Other witnesses questioned the mental and physical health of the would-be parents and whether applicants' home conditions should be taken into consideration as they would be in applications for adoption. The committee, committee noted that one could not, quote, prevent problem parents bringing more and more children into the world, nor can we prevent unmarried persons having children for whom there is no welcome, no home, no prospects. Nonetheless, several witnesses argued that that was no reason why the government should make available to such persons a service which might increase the number of unhealthy or unstable children for whom the state would have to provide substitute parents and homes. Some witnesses um, also stipulated that merely the fitness for motherhood of the women applying for AI should be investigated. Um, some of the doctors who gave evidence hinted at ethical objections to the procedure as being their reason for objecting it. Indeed, it became clear in some doctors' oral evidence to the committee that the reason they did not have any patients receiving AI was because they had been actively dissuading patients from asking for it. Again, this tends to come through towards <coughs> the end 
of the interviews, not in their written evidence, but if they're called to provide um, verbal accounts of themselves, the committee tend to elicit these kind of responses later in the evidence. In a few cases, if the patient really insisted, the doctor claimed to have offered to send them south of the border to England. Um, there are parallels with abortion in this regard and with a number of other things I'm going to go on to see. In terms of the legal status of the procedure, we certainly see parallels with abortion at this time, in the sense that many doctors claimed not to be sure whether it was actually legal to practice AI. In 1950s Scotland, medical understanding of the law surrounding abortion was fairly uncertain. While the Scottish legal establishment considered abortion a matter of medical discretion, with medical practitioners free to terminate a pregnancy when acting in good, in good faith in the interest of the health or welfare of their patient, very few doctors, certainly from the interviews I conducted with retired physicians and surgeons, were acutely aware um, were actually aware of the legal flexibility here, and thus most of them, um, I would argue, failed to exploit their legal right to terminate pregnancy unless the woman's life was in imminent danger. The law seemed to be less clear on the legality of AI, thus doctors experienced the same or even greater confusion in this than in abortion. One Edinburgh-based doctor asked in his oral evidence... The medical profession do not at present have the right of carrying out AID. Am I wrong there? Mr Justice Stevenson of the committee responded, every doctor has, i.e. the legal right. Another doctor claimed to have made inquiries through various legal channels and the Medical Defence Union in order to try to find out whether AI was legal or not. They apparently told him that they would not guarantee that somebody who had had AI with donated semen could not bring a legal action. So it's understandable with advice like that that doctors were treading very carefully. And it was not just individual doctors who were confused about the, the law governing AI, because even the Department of Health for Scotland claimed at that time that under the current law there was uncertainty as to the legality of the procedure. The National Health Service had not issued guidelines on it, though this appears to have been because it was regarded as a matter for clinical decision by the individual doctor, again much like abortion. And another parallel with abortion was the extent to, to which AI was considered to be a clinical enterprise at all. Quite apart from the ethical concerns, some gynaecologists were said to be averse to performing a termination of pregnancy because it was viewed as technologically unchallenging and potentially de-skilling, and there were similar discussions about AI, a task which a number of witnesses claimed that really anyone could do. The procedure simply involved the depositing of semen by means of suitable instruments into the female genital tract. Was it really a specialised medical enterprise that fell within the doctor's proper sphere of responsibility? Similarly, in relation to selecting suitable couples to undergo the procedure, one psychiatrist argued that the comments of his profession were, quote, in no way enhanced because of their status as psychiatrists <coughs> and that they had no peculiar right to make judgment in what was largely a moral field. Some witnesses including the Royal College of Surgeons of Edinburgh, did, however, feel strongly, and again resonating with abortion discussions, 
that despite being a technically very simple procedure, it should remain strictly in the medical domain and under rigid control. In a centralised medical domain within the framework of the NHS, performed in a single hospital within each region by a nominated gynaecologist. There were financial considerations here too, that a private service would, quote, have charlatans practising it at probably exorbitant fees. But also that it was important to get medical judgments on the extent to which women were physically and emotionally fit for the procedure. Such feelings that infertility must remain a tightly controlled medical procedure came from witnesses who nonetheless tended to refer to the procedure as a, quote, repugnant business. In short, I think it's fair to say that the evidence submitted to the Feversham Committee by doctors suggested that AID did not have any widespread support of the medical profession and elicited the same very wide range of opinions that one sees in relation to abortion. If we turn briefly to the legal witnesses to the Feversham Committee, again we see great uncertainty over AI's legal status in Britain at this time. Feversham witnesses noted that the Scottish courts had not had occasion to consider the issue and some tentatively suggested that it thus did not appear to be a criminal offence. However, one Scottish professor of law claimed that AID in Scotland constituted the common law crime of fraud and in England the crime of conspiracy. The majority of Feversham witnesses felt that AI by donor should not be criminalised but this was mainly because it was feared that such a legal clampdown would drive the practice underground, not because people approved of it. However, many felt that legislative action was required in three respects. That the birth of a child through AI without the consent of the husband should be a ground for divorce. That a birth through AI with the consent of the husband should be a bar to nullity and grounds of impotence. Um, and that this should require a husband to maintain the child. Doctors were advised to seek the husband's consent before they would consider artificially inseminating a woman, indeed to get that consent in writing in their own presence so that the woman couldn't pull a fast one and deceive anyone. As one doctor did dryly note, however, surely this was only a theoretical problem since any woman going to that trouble would simply try ordinary methods of adultery. A fair point, I think. Questions were raised, both by legal and medical witnesses, over the motives of women seeking such treatment. They were felt to be risks of dishonesty due to the level of desperation that many of these women would feel to be pregnant. Um, I, I would note, however, that these allegations of dishonesty against these women are rather rich, given that the few doctors involved in AI tended to be fundamentally dishonest themselves. I'm thinking particularly of the recommendation issued by doctors in general that couples undergoing AI by donor should continue to have sexual relations with their husband just in case they were fortunate enough to conceive naturally. And the general practice of inseminating a woman with a mixture of semen, some from her husband and some from a donor, so-called AIHD, in the hope that the couple would believe that they had conceived naturally, because as doctors admitted, there was almost no chance by that stage in the procedure that the husband would have been able to, um, to have semen that would have allowed for natural conception. 
The extent to which this was psychologically beneficial or damaging um, for the couple was debated vigorously in the evidence, with concern expressed by some that it led to unnecessary confusion and ambiguity, that it made the accurate keeping of records impossible, and that it was fundamentally dishonest to place a couple in a position where they did not know whether or not the husband was the father of the child. The motives of the sperm donor were also questioned by several of the the witnesses. One Glasgow-based senior consultant gynaecologist noted that he had only had around four serious inquiries and demands for AID in the last 20 years. Of course, this does not mean he only had four inquiries, and we are left wondering, I think, what a serious inquiry was in his mind. He doesn't stipulate. His response um, to such, quote, serious inquiries was to point out that any donor who is prepared to give semen to a woman whose mental and physical background is unknown to him and who is prepared to father children who will be born into a completely unknown environment, so far as he is concerned, is a man whose ethical standards are so unusual as to be of doubtful value from a a eugenic point of view. Um, He went on... This simple statement has been sufficient in most cases to discourage further inquiry. It should be added, however, that this is put in a quite objective fashion. And if the patient still wishes such treatment, I am quite prepared to refer her to a recognised practitioner who's prepared to carry out the procedure of AID. So I kind of wonder if a serious inquiry meant that the woman was so determined that she would fight through this doctor's very well-considered Um, ways of trying to throw her off the scent, if you like. Probably a rather unfortunate term, but you know what I mean. What was also inconclusive in the evidence submitted to Feversham was whether the law should be amended to make an artificial insemination child legitimate for the purposes of birth registration. From the outset of civil registration of births, illegitimacy had proved to be a contentious subject and a deeply stigmatising label. In 1948, a decade before the Feversham departmental inquiry into AI, questions began to be asked in Parliament and elsewhere about the legal status of children conceived through AI. So this is quite a long um, discussion that had been going on. They asked whether these births were to be registered as legitimate when the child was going to be raised by a married couple, or was the child to be considered illegitimate because donor sperm had been used? Politicians did suggest, though their responses were often vague or tentative, that where a woman's husband supplied the sperm, the birth should be registered as legitimate, but if a donor had supplied the the sperm, then the resulting child should automatically be considered illegitimate. However, by 1958, um, some feverish witnesses certainly were complaining strongly that where the husband and the mother had consented to AI by donor, the husband should be deemed the father and the child should be considered legitimate rather than suffer the lifelong disability that accompanied the illegitimacy label. Indeed, under Scots law, there was a legal presumption that a child born in wedlock was legitimate. Others, however, who were giving evidence disagreed vehemently, feeling that a child could not possibly be legitimate if it was not conceived by its mother's husband. Some even felt that insemination by the husband's sperm should not be legitimated because the the child had not been conceived through natural intercourse. However, 
As with lack of experience in the medical sphere, we see a similar phenomenon in registration circles. Since by 1960, which was when the records I consulted ended, no Scottish case had actually come forward um, at birth registration. What this presumably means is that no couple admitted that their husband, that the, sorry, that their child had been born by this means, rather than the Scottish Registration Office's, Office's comment in private correspondence that artificial insemination, a quote, new scientific method of immaculate conception, had not reached the primitive fastnesses of Scotland yet. These biblical comments take me nicely into the, the, the final sort of body of, of, um, of, of witnesses, which was the religious groups consulted by the Feversham Committee. The main religious objection to donor insemination was that it was a violation of the marriage vows and tantamount to adultery. As the Free Presbyterian Church of Scotland noted, insemination by donor involved the parties concerned in a gross breach of the seventh and ninth commandments. No doubt you understand this. I had to decode <coughs> this reference, which translated as, um, you shall not commit adultery and you shall not bear false witness against your neighbour. I think lie. It should be said that even some of the doctors interviewed by uh, the Feversham Committee argued that AID should be considered automatically adulterous. Indeed, one psychiatrist argued that some patients ultimately felt that they had committed adultery, not with the sperm donor, but with the doctor who had performed the procedure. The Free Presbyterian Church warned that the enormity of this offence must not go unpunished and that everyone involved must be punished for practising this unnatural form of immorality, the couple themselves, the donor who supplied the semen and the medical man involved. To fail to treat the practice as a criminal offence was to provide, quote, an outstanding cause for an outpouring of the wrath of God upon the Scottish nation. The Scottish Committee of Catholic Union argued that the procreation of children should only take place within the, law, the, the, the bonds of lawful wedlock and that sexual intercourse between a married person and a third party was always adulterous, even if the other spouse had consented. The Catholic Church held the insemination of a woman with the seed of a man other than her husband to be intrinsically evil and questioned the element of deception that was inherent to the procedure. Um, an interesting quote, I think, from them. This queer respect that men have for the truth, philosophically speaking, is very odd. There's no reason why men should respect truth, but they do. It would be very awkward to look at your neighbour one day and say to yourself, I wonder if he came out of a test tube and does not know it. I think the results to society and the family are so serious that AID should be definitely outlawed. So the majority of the Scottish churches favoured making the practice of AID illegal on the basis that what was prohibited by divine law should be prohibited by criminal law. Furthermore, unlike the other witnesses who submitted evidence uh, to the Feversham Committee, some religious witnesses, not all but some, <coughs> objected strongly to AI using the husband's semen. Their objections were once again that it was inconsistent with human dignity and the sanctity of marriage, and also that they considered that the practice lay open to possible abuses, such as being used as a covery for adultery. Or if AI by husband was allowed, but AI by donor forbidden, 
what was to stop a husband's sperm being used for AID by the misguided and unscrupulous? There were fears that any separation of conception from the natural sexual act was fraught with dangers. There were also strong objections in some quarters to the fact that the procedure involved masturbation, or as the Free Church referred to it, a revolting act, a vile abuse of the body, and a serious sin, which in itself should be enough to show the sinfulness and the immorality of the whole process. Witnesses from the Church of Scotland, however, differentiated masturbation simply for personal gratification from masturbation for the purpose of procreation with the wife and leading to the birth of a child. Um, So if I move to a conclusion, um, I want to briefly return to the geography of infertility. One of my main considerations of this project which is to question whether there was a distinctively Scottish socio-medical response to the politics of reproduction. In my previous work with Roger Davidson, which considered um, a, a range of sexual case studies in post-World War II Scotland, including homosexuality, abortion, prostitution <coughs> and sex education, we found that despite the supposedly socially disruptive effects of the Second World War in Britain, There was in Scotland a distinct degree of continuity between the ideology, assumptions and legal framework underpinning policy in pre-war Scotland and that prevailing in the 1950s and indeed for a good maybe 20 years beyond that. Policy continued to be heavily informed by traditional values and moral imperatives. More than in neighbouring England, Scottish public opinion appeared to be of a distinctly conservative tenor. Many of the Scottish churches were notoriously conservative, and many doctors weren't far behind. The early indications are that infertility quite nicely fits this pattern. From preliminary analysis, it would seem that Scotland was less, far less favourable, well, less favourable to artificial insemination by donor than the rest of the UK. Um, It may may be said even less favourable. I need to do more research into the English evidence to the Feversham Committee to really confirm that. Certainly in a, a February 1958 article in the Scotsman newspaper, a Gallup poll was quoted which reported 13% in favour of AI by donor in the United Kingdom, but only 10% in favour in Scotland. Such figures were supported by a range of comments made in the feversham evidence in medical and religious circles, if not necessarily legal circles, um, and also in terms of the clear lack of AID practised in Scotland. Some witnesses spoke with what can only be described as venom about the procedure and its moral failings, while others claimed that it was purely for practical reasons that they could not work in this field, but even more than the 13 10% divergence um, that the Gallup poll finds, the qualitative evidence I found does suggest that, that the Scottish witnesses were more conservative and the committee quickly cottoned on to this. Um, the committee in particular quizzed one Scottish female physician about why it appeared to be more difficult, much more difficult to get sperm donors in England, in Scotland than in England. Her cryptic response was that the Scottish attitude um, to women was different to the English one. 
The committee's similarly cryptic response was that it was what our English friends might call a peculiar Scottish characteristic. When the doctor defensively retorted, I do not know that it is peculiar, a committee member responded, well, not to the Scotsman. I wonder if there are Irish similarities here. Um, these Scottish peculiarities appear to relate to a wider theme that Roger and I have found consistently um, in other aspects of Scottish sexuality at this time. The culture of moral conservatism intrinsic to Scottish society and Scottish policymakers alike heavily influenced, it appears, by Calvinistic values. Thank you very much.